Okay, hello everybody. I'm Rob Baldwin uh, from the Law Department. This is my colleague, Professor Julia Black from the Law Department. Um, could I just ask you, how many of you are actually uh, lawyers or uh, students of law here? Oh, okay, right. Uh, well, don't worry. <laughs> it's, it, wait, it's, it'll scar you for life, but we'll let, we'll let you off this afternoon. Uh, so we're, we're talking from a perspective of law as a social science. So for, for, for non-lawyers, um, you probably think that um, what we lawyers get up to are analyses of black letter rules. So we describe what is in the, the statutes and the case law, etc., etc. Um, and it might be a surprise to some of you to know that there are whole courses in the law department at the LSE where you don't do any cases and you don't do any statutes. Um, so we've moved that far, kind of away from black letter law in the direction of uh, law as a social science. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, an issue in regulation, which is uh, a hot topic, namely risk-based regulation. Um, and, th and this is an example of the, kind of the way that we move beyond the black letter description of the rules approach to law. And we get into things like the alternatives to using rules, um, how you go about enforcing rules, um, command styles of control in regulation versus non-command styles, such as market-based systems of influence. Uh, uh, Julie and I have been interested in regulation for some time. Uh, A, because we're interested in how you do things with other things apart from rules and how you apply rules. Um, and because of a general interest in control systems from a, an interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary perspective. I think we think that regulation is a topic that you cannot understand from the perspective of, of one core discipline, that it's best to look at it from a number of angles. Um, uh, so we're interested in implementation issues and also interactions of logics. Like, Different control systems, whether they're laws or informal rules, have different ways of operating, different processes, different understandings they operate on. And these, these logics tend to interact, sometimes benignly, sometimes quite adversely. Uh, and we'll be talking about that more today. So uh, what is the argument about risk-based regulation? Well, I'll, I'll let Julia describe that. Okay, we've got, um, we've got a bit of a challenge today because we've got 45 minutes really to introduce you to, to regulation, uh, to really responsive regulation and to risk-based regulation. So we're going to have to skirt quite quickly over what often what are quite complicated issues. So um, I know for many years when people ask me, what do, you, what do you research? And I say regulation. And you usually just get a blank stare and uh, a comment that they'll just go and get another drink. Okay. But increasingly, as regulation becomes more popular, you find that they do go and get another drink, but sometimes they might even bring one back for me, which is, is always you know, quite entertaining, um, depending on who they are, of course. But regulation is that whole sort of extended administrative apparatus okay, that extends beyond departments, out into the diaspora of regulatory agencies, executive bodies, bodies you've never even heard of, some of which you possibly have. Um, but it also goes down into um, regulation within firms, within markets, um, uh, within self-regulatory organisations themselves. So you've got this whole activity, basically, which is about how law is operated in practice and how it's supplemented by non-legal non, uh, norms. Now, the bit of regulation we're looking at here is, is not so complicated because it's state-based. It is that all that diaspora of those different political agencies and what they're doing. And part of what they're moving to increasingly is something called risk-based regulation. Well, what, what is risk-based regulation? Risk-based regulation is regulators essentially saying, okay, we've been given a long list of things to do. Um, and in fact, we have more rules to implement than we can possibly hope to, hope to achieve in their implementation. We have a limited set of resources and we have an infinite number of tasks. Um, how do we prioritise? Now, regulators have always prioritised. The issue about risk-based regulation is really who makes the decisions about what those priorities should be. Is it made by the field officer deciding that actually they're going to visit X, Y and Z chemical plants today and they're going to spend X hours or three days? Or is it made at a central policy level um, and it's systematised across the organisation and made relatively sort of explicit and open? 
Risk-based regulation is, is the regulator saying, OK, we, we're recognising that there's only so many things we can do, that we have to organise our objectives um, and we have to organise our priorities. Now, that means actually not doing things. And this is, where, this is where the interesting thing comes in, both for political scientists and I think for lawyers, because, remember, they have been given a task by the legislature, which is all the standard setters, who have said, we think this re these risks are important and that we should allow a certain level of risk to occur within society and we should try and manage um, risks above that level of tolerability, as it were. What happens in risk-based regulation is regulators take a second-order decision and say, OK, well, you said we've got to manage risk to this level of tolerability. In fact, we can't because we don't have the resources to do that. So we're actually going to have a higher level of tolerance in relation to some risks and a lower level of tolerance in relation to other risks. So we're going to prioritise your own priorities, as it were. So we're going to decide that we're going to focus on these firms, this type of um, risk, and not, in fact, on those firms. And it's the decisions on what not to do, um, which obviously regulators find the hardest um, to make. And it's the decisions on what not to do, which is going to catch regulators out when the crisis blows up, when the chemical plant blows up that they didn't inspect, or they hadn't inspected for the last three years because it was relatively low risk, when the bank blows up that they hadn't inspected properly for the last two years because it wasn't regarded as particularly high risk, see Northern Rock. Now, those will then give perceptions of failure of the regulatory organisation, um, both by the public, by politicians, etc. So part of what regulators are doing when they're deciding what risks to focus on and what not are thinking, well, if we don't do things and it blows up, can we manage that perception of failure? Can we justify um, our inactivity in that area on a rational basis by saying, you know, the probability was very low um, and if we had spent resources there, we wouldn't have been able to prevent this much bigger accident elsewhere. So that's what risk-based regulation is. Really responsive regulation um, is Romnard sort of framework, really, for how we think regulators, uh, what questions regulators should be asking or need to ask if they're to be able to respond effectively to changes in the regulatory circumstances um, and to, to regulate effectively. So risk-based regulation is, a, is an empirical thing that regulators are doing. Okay? Re really responsive regulation is an analytical framework which Rob and I have, have devised. Okay? Um, so, in terms of the really responsive framework, then what we argue is that they have to be Regulators have to be, and are to an extent, responsive to five different things. Okay, how firms behave, the attitude and behaviour of firms themselves. Um, do they not implement regulation because they're just completely intractable and they're just never going to want to engage with the regulatory system? Pig farmers, often frequent examples of that. Or are they not complying with regulation just because they, they're actually a small, medium-sized enterprise, they've got two people and a dog, um, you know, the dog is the most effective member of the organisation. They really don't know what the rules are. They don't have the systems in place to implement the raft of health and safety, food hygiene, etc. regulations. So is it just because they're organisationally incompetent but otherwise willing? Is it because they're actually very organisationally competent but they're just completely unwilling? So they're very good at deviance, okay, and working their way around the rules. Okay, so you need to, regulators need to respond to how firms respond to regulation in a very reflexive, um, reflect, very reflexive way. Now, that's a, a relatively well-known and well-established feature of regulation enforcement research. The other thing we argue that regulators have to be responsible to, responsive to, rather, is to the wider um, organisational institutional environment in, in which they operate. Regulators aren't alone, as it were, in how they decide to deal with a firm. They themselves are subject to performance accountability regimes that may require them, for example, to do so many inspections um, a year, um, that may require them to show that they've done certain things. They're usually very output orientated. Um, they often have to work with other regulators to achieve a particular regulatory objective. Go back to financial regulation again. The, the FSA, the Bank of England, the Treasury. It was obvious that neither was particularly responsive to the other. Uh, and they just didn't particularly coordinate very well, particularly in the early stages of that crisis. So you've got to think about how the regulator is situated within the institutional environment. As Rob alluded to, to move on to the third one, 
uh, at the beginning, you've got to think about how your different instruments um, of control interact. If you've got a market-based system, um, uh, for example, of, of permit trading in environmental regulation, that's not necessarily going to interact particularly well with a heavy command and control um, um, system. So you've got, and if you've got a very deterrence-based enforcement system that hammers down very hard on every infraction, that's not going to help you in your detection work when you really want the firms to be quite open in the information that they give to you. So you've got different logics of different, um, uh, different control strategies which are being used. And obviously regulation is a dynamic process. It's not a fact. It, it, is, it is a process. It will change. The circumstances in which it operates will change the whole time. Regulators need to be sensitive to what they're actually doing and the effects that they're having um, on the regulated, on those that they're regulating. Finally, regulators are part of a political landscape. Uh, they do need a political license, what we call a political license, to operate. And in the choices that they're making about what their priorities should be um, are, are going to be affected by political demands, by crises which flare up, by media scares, um, and their attention is necessarily going to be sort of diverted in those different directions. And the question is, to what extent should regulators stand back and, and maintain a kind of rational stance, and to what extent should they be responsive to democratic pressures in, in an ultimately democratic system. So there are, there are issues there about to what extent should they stand their ground with their systematised framework and to what extent do they, should they be taking on board um, these different uh, responses to crises, some of which may blow over in an afternoon, some of which may you know, turn out to be World War uh, III in a political sense. So that's responsiveness. Well, okay, I'll talk about tasks now. So thus far then what we've said is that um, most regulators have to do risk-based regulation. In the UK, it's, it's mandatory for the major regulators to do risk-based regulation. Now, like any regulator, they have to get to grips with all of these challenges. But what we're talking about today are the, are the special problems and difficulties you have if you're a risk-based regulator in taking on board things like behavior and attitude and culture and all these other things. Um, so that, that's the first big challenge which we're talking about, namely you're a risk-based regulator, you're supposed to be targeting the biggest risk creators, uh, and you're supposed to also be taking on board these things to get the job done. The other thing you've got to do as, as any regulator is discharge the, the core tasks of regulation. Uh, and the core tasks of regulation you can think of, we suggest, on what we call the dream framework. Um, it's, it's all driven by the acronym DREAM uh, the things you've got to do are first thing, imagine that you are a fisheries regulator so you're trying to protect cod stocks in the North Sea first thing you've got to do is detect you've got to find out what's going on out there on these boats on the high seas, who is actually killing the cod and how are they doing that are they sticking within the rules or are they creatively complying around the rules so you've got to gain information on desirable, undesirable behaviour and non-compliant behaviour. Now, non-compliant behaviour is behaviour that breaks the rules. But one of the advantages of a risk-based approach, as Julia said, is that you're concerned not simply with people breaking the rules, but people doing things that impact on your achieving your objectives as a regulator. Namely, in this case, protecting the, the cod stocks. Okay, so some people may damage the cod stocks without breaking the rules because they creatively comply around the rules or if the rules are all to do with mesh sizes, they're long lining. So that's the first job you've got to do, you've got to detect. Second thing you've got to do is respond. You have got to develop a toolkit of powers which may be stop and search, seizure, entry, etc. powers. And you've got, to, you've got to go to government and you've got to get the powers you need to get the job done. So things like you know, power to board trawlers. The third thing is you need to enforce. That is, you've got to have a strategy for applying these powers on the ground to the, get the results you need. Fourthly, you've got to assess. You've got to know how well you are doing the job. Because it may well be that you know, you're only getting to grips with 30% of the issue, of the mischief, or it might be 90%, but you've got to know 
what impact you're having on the world out there as a regulator. Because if you don't know that, you don't know whether it's worth coming to work in the morning, and you also don't know whether you need to change your strategy. And whether you need to say, okay, well, let's stop you know, enforcing all these rules in a risk-based manner. Let's just set up a, an emissions trading type system. So you've got to be able to assess. And then, of course, you've got to be able to modify. You've got to be able to adjust your game. If your assessment says, well, you're only getting to grips with these sorts of risks, there are these big systemic risks that you're not getting to grips with, or there's the long lining, the new risk and the new risk creator come on the scene, and you're not getting to grips with them, then you've got to change your game. You've got to be able to go to the minister, whoever, get the new powers, and, and rejig your whole operation. Because there's no point in doing your assessment that tells you, well, you're doing a reasonably good job, but not a great job, you need to change. You know, if you can't, then go out and change. Okay, so those are what we see as being the, the, sort of the five key jobs you have to do as, as any regulator. And the question is, how do you be a risk-based regulator that can meet the general challenges of you know, taking on board the sorts of cultures of the people you're regulating and discharge these five tasks as well. And one of the problems we get is that the challenges that you meet as this risk-based regulator vary across these tasks. When you're doing the different jobs, the challenges vary across those jobs, and that's, that's the big challenge. <laughs> uh, parenthetically now, I'd just like to say that we're very grateful for the support of SAGE for uh, this session, which I should have said at the start. Okay, so we got to this point. Now, how do risk-based regulators meet the challenges? Well, the first challenge that uh, Julia was pointing to was being responsive to the behavior and attitude and culture. I, I'm regulating you. You're all industrialists. I have to know what sort of people you are. Are you, you know, inclined to comply or are you absolutely defiant of the regulator? Now... Most risk scoring systems that risk-based regulators use will evaluate the quality of the managers who are managing the risks out there in, in factories, let's say. Uh, so I, I will have an idea about how good you are at managing your risks of all these chemicals or whatever you're, you're using. And so I can score that. Um, so risk-based regulation routinely demands that I look to this because, of course, how good you are at managing your risks affects the probability that those risks will do harms. Because what I'm concerned about as a regulator is the, is the product of the quantum of the harm you might do times the probability of that harm ensuing. And if you've got a good risk management system that I rate highly, then that lowers the probability that the harm will occur. Okay, um, first challenge for a risk scoring system as a risk-based regulator is that your attitude and culture will not be constant across the discharge of the five tasks of regulation. Okay, now, I'll just stop there. One of the things that happens in a risk-based regulatory system is that it generally involves me delegating regulation down to you, the companies, to some extent. Because what I'm doing is I am leaving you to control the risks quite often. So I'm not telling you how to manage the risks. You are managing the risks, and I am auditing or monitoring and evaluating the way that you are dealing with those risks. So you will be have to, you'll have to be doing the, the detection, the response development, the enforcement, the assessment in your company, let's say. Now, my first challenge in evaluating you as a management team is that some of you may be quite good at detecting problems, but terrible at dealing with them once you've detected them. Others may be good at both. Some of you may be very good at assessment, but not detection, etc., etc., etc. So my first challenge in evaluating the management systems that I'm looking at is, is going across all the different tasks of regulation. Uh, the second issue is the degree to which, having developed my risk scoring system, in which I basically I'm saying, okay, which of your companies presents the biggest risk 
to us achieving our statutory objective. And so I, I, we identify the people with the biggest risk scores and go after them. Now the problem is that that only tells us so, so much as a regulator, the risk scoring system. The risk, if you have a very high risk scoring system, score for your company, that might mean that I have to take some action with a great degree of urgency because you present a really severe risk. But it doesn't tell me a lot about what I have to do as a regulator to get you to behave properly, i.e. to fix the filters or whatever. Because the very fact that you are dangerous doesn't tell me whether I've got to uh, threaten you with a prosecution or educate you or persuade you or, or give you a grant or whatever. So one of the problems about risk-based regulation is that we devote all this resource to risk scoring you, but those risk scores actually don't tell us a great deal in the discharge of all of our tasks. They tell us quite a lot about how to detect the big risk create creators, but not about what to do once we've identified them. So in that sense, we have to hybridize. We have to supplement risk-based regulation with additional strategies. So once we've found out that your factory is a big risk creator, then we might apply another philosophy of regulation, such as responsive regulation, where we, we, hit, we negotiate with you at first, and then we hit you with harder sanctions insofar as you don't behave properly. Um, but the first point then is that the risk scoring system, which is central to a risk-based regime, doesn't really tell us much about what we've got to do to get you to behave properly. Um, so already we're seeing that risk-based regulation, which was tend to be sold as if it's some sort of technical solution to regulatory decision-making, starts to fall apart a bit and hybridize as we have to supplement it with these other philosophies. There's another problem as well, which is risk-based regulation, as we've said a few times, seems to suggest that what you do is you identify the biggest risk creators and you go after them. And that's the way you target your resource. But let's consider these two companies. This is my best ever slide. Uh, okay, Milco and Scatterco. Milco, can you hope you can see this? Uh, Milco is a large single site operation. The managers are quite amenable. They'll do as they're told. Um, and they also can implement any instructions we, the regulators, give them. Okay? Scatico is quite different. Scatico is a nasty, dangerous, uncooperative company. And it has lots and lots of premises scattered around the UK. So it's very expensive to regulate against because we have to drive around the country speaking to all the different site managers because they don't listen to head office. Okay, now, Scatico presents 90 units of risk. Milco presents 80 units of risk. The Scatico is more dangerous. Now, if we have £10,000 worth of, of regulatory resource to play with, do we spend it in regulating Scatico or Milco? Now, if we spend the £10,000 at Milco, we can reduce 80 units of risk, let's say to air quality, down to 20, because they're amenable. They'll do as they're told. Scatico much more expensive to regulate again, so that £10,000 will reduce from 90 to 70. So you see that the issue here is that we buy a risk reduction of 60 units at Milco and 20 units at Scatico. Okay, now we're risk-based regulators, let's assume. So how do we spend this £10,000 of resource? Okay, one option is you spend it all on the biggest risk creator. That's Scatico. But if our objective is to clean up air quality, then it doesn't really matter that much to us whether you know, the pollution is coming from Scatico or Milco. So that's a hugely inefficient use of resource. If we spend the money on Milco, that's a much more efficient use of our regulatory resource. But then if something happens at Scatico and there's an accident, the press will say, well, what were you doing at Scatico? And we say, well, not much. And, and they, 
the journalists say, oh, is that because they weren't the biggest risk? And we'll say, no, they were the biggest risk, but, but we weren't doing very much for, you know, we're in trouble then. So how would you spend the £10,000 between Skasko and Milko? Now, if you had five minutes to think about this, you'd probably come up with a number of solutions. You know, one solution might be to spend the money on Skatico until you get them down to 80, and then you spend equally, or you try and get down, you try and get both companies down to the same level. Or you spend all the money on Milco and hope nothing happens at Skatico. So you can come up with five, six, or seven different ways of spending that resource quite quickly. But hold it. I thought that risk-based regulation was supposed to be, you know, you risk score everybody, you identify the biggest risk creators, and you go after the biggest risk creators. That's Scatico. So you'll see here that um, the purity of a risk-based system starts to break down pretty dramatically if we take on board things like the need to politically justify what we're doing. Um, so that's... The big problem about taking on board. Okay, picking yeah, I'm going to pick up from that. I am actually moving on to my other slide, but leaving that for the moment. If you okay, so that's that's sort of a decision within the regulated regulatory organisation itself. And the thing to bear in mind with these decisions is they regulators see them as, as basically internal operational, organisational, technical decisions. These aren't put out for public consultation, they're very rarely put out in any public record at all. This is, <clears throat> as far as the regulator is concerned, really nobody else's business. This is really just about internal deployment of resources. And then a report on the total quantum of inspections that were done, etc., but not actually on the choices that are being made. However, the other thing we argue that regulators have to be responsive to is, is the broad institutional environment in which they operate. Now, if you're talking about risk, that's a very unstable notion. People have very different perceptions of what constitutes a bad thing, of um, how bad a thing is, and of just how risky different activities are. So generally people perceive flying in an aeroplane to be actually more dangerous than driving a car, where in fact, statistically, it's completely the reverse. But why do they see it that way? Because they're not in control in flying the aeroplane when they think they are in driving the car. The other way where perceptions of risk differ is not in terms of probability, but in terms of the nature of the impact. So people um, will, there'll be far more outcry about a multiple fertility, fertility accident, in other words, lots of people get killed in one accident, than there is about a number of different small accidents in which the same number of people or even more people get killed. So I think of a multiple train crash, big public outcry, whereas in fact the same number of people are killed on the roads every day, but just individually. Now, if we were to reverse this around, you could say, okay, well, we've said that Milko presents 80 units of risk and Scatico 90. Now, that might be based on probabilities, okay? Risk is a factor of probabilities times impact. So we could be saying that actually the impacts um, in terms of what will actually happen may be, um, may be the same, but the probability is just different between the two firms because Scatico is so much work badly organised, etc., etc. <coughs> However, to be honest, if something happened at one of the Scatico sites, the public impact, the extent to which that's recognised by the public, would be very small. Okay, the extent, if something happens at Milco, okay, the extent to which it's recognised will be huge and the regulator will be under massive pressure. Now, in fact, within this regime, we said, well, we should, in one argument, go for Milco because we can reduce it down to 20 quite quickly. If actually Wilco was at 80, but we can only get it down to 70, Scatico's at 90, but we can get it down to 20, a risk resource efficiency framework would say, okay, go to Scatico, but actually if you're going to be responsive to how the public is going to respond to an accident, they'd say go to Milco, because multiple fatalities, much more public pressure. So trying to be responsive to your institutional environment is going to drive pulling in very different directions in these fundamental choices okay remember this is all being made underneath politics underneath where the laws have been set okay in these relatively opaque um, uh, surroundings I'll come, we'll come on to justification legitimation later on okay well I'll move on to the next slide okay so that's in a way risk-based regimes you could argue well transparency if an organization regulatory organization is upfront about this 
then that's a good big tick for accountability, as it were. But at the same time, it makes it peculiarly vulnerable um, to challenge about these decisions that are being made, where if it keeps it relatively opaque, then it can sort of fluff it a bit. Um, okay, well, what, that's, as I said before, just the one regulator operating on its own, making these decisions. Many regulators don't operate in that kind of environment. They operate where they have to work in coordination and conjunction with other organisations. Now, we're going to move from fisheries to, to financial services. We do have other regulatory domains that don't begin with F, but we just thought we'd stick on the same letter of the alphabet today. Um, go back to the tripartite authorities, okay? They're meant to coordinate in provision or ensuring financial stability. In fact, they all have different remits, different tasks, and they will perceive they will see different things as being risks. And moreover, when you're talking about risk reduction, it's not so much you're going to get from X state of risk to Y state. It's about risk-risk trade-offs. You're going to prefer X risk over a different type of risk. Okay, so give, some, give that some sort of um, uh, substance. The Financial Service Authority will look at a bank and it will want it to hold capital. Okay, hold a bunch of money aside so it can pay out depositors when depositors want that money very basically, okay? because it is concerned with the soundness of that particular bank. The Bank of England will want banks to lend, does want banks to lend, because it is concerned with macroeconomic growth. So it doesn't want banks to hoard money necessarily, it wants it to lend that money out. So its risk that it's concerned with is um, deflation or lack of economic growth. The Treasury is there. The risk that it's concerned about is taxpayers' money, fiscal deficit. Okay, so each one of those is trying to manage risks, but actually trying to manage quite different risks and in ways which are going to conflict. Okay, so any system that a regulator devises is not going to be able to be completely pure and on its own. It's going to have to interact with these different agencies in the way it brings it together. Now, the other challenge that, that is faced is that they have... Um, different tasks to do <clears throat> but you have different um, actors engaged sometimes in performing the same task so stick with financial regulation if you're talking about trying to detect the risk that a bank is facing um, financial risk market risk then regulators um, don't just do don't do their own detection work on that they use detection work as we know done by others done by the firms done by credit rating agencies now again, each one of those is using different parameters of risk, they're using different parameters of um, scenarios, of different futures of what might happen. Um, and so you have this accumulation, as it were, that builds up through the different regulatory, through the regulatory regime. Now the final, um, all of which may be compounding slightly different risk assessments. So a final issue just to talk about on, on this bit here in responsiveness is that Risk-based regimes, because they articulate themselves in terms of scores and high impact and low impact and scores of one to five and red lights and green lights and traffic lights, etc., they look very quantitative, they look very technical. Now, some of them are quite quantitative, but quite often they're actually very subjective, very qualitative, um, assessing how good is management at managing risks, how good is this system going to be under stress, and they're highly qualitative, highly subjective judgments which actually require enormously skilled regulators um, to make them. So you have, um, within that, you, you really have to take on board the importance, as it were, of the, the political economy or the organisational culture of the regulator itself, of how it is making these different assessments and the impact um, that regulators' own perceptions of risk have on how they themselves assess the risk that they see others as posing, the sort of second, third, or the fourth order um, process. Okay. Now, we've talked a little bit about logics. I'm not really going to, to focus there on the first three. I'm going to focus on the thing that you have to bear in mind is risk-based regulation has a logic of its own, which is that of risk. You look around, you're What's, what's happening in your fisheries or your banks, etc., and you look at what risks they pose to, well, you really, you being able to achieve your objectives, which is to ensure that cod isn't overfished or that banks don't fail or people aren't missold things or that chemical plants don't blow up. So you focus very much starting on, well, what types of things might lead to a chemical plant blowing up? What type of things might lead to a bank blowing up, cod being overfished, etc.? 
It's a very different starting point and deliberately different starting point from looking at what rules does this company have to comply with. Now regulators move to risk-based regulation often because they have too many rules. Now that's fine if there's a, a continuity or harmony between what the rules focus on and the risks that you want to prevent. So you're chopping around your factory and you think, okay, well, I think that that poses a risk. And you say to the factory manager, I want you to change your system in, a different, in such a way so that it's going to manage and mitigate that risk. Say the factory manager then doesn't respond, or the bank doesn't respond, and the um, regulator is saying, I want to, I'm going to raise your capital, but you have to hold aside because, because, of, because of this reason which I think poses a risk. You then want to take enforcement, formal legal action against them. The thing is, you need a rule. To take legal action, you need somebody to have breached something or to be in danger of breaching something. So you need to have your risk that you've identified backed up by a rule that says, if you don't do this, then I can take action against you. Now, in a risk-based system, regulators can find that actually they're now identifying all sorts of things that they think are risks but there's no rule that actually requires a company to do anything to mitigate that particular risk. It really depends on how detailed the rules are. So you can have a logic of compliance, which is requiring firms to go around and do all sorts of activities that actually risk-based regulators don't think are at all necessary, because they don't really pose a massive risk if your ladder is you know, so wide as opposed to so wide. Um, but there are big risks that the company's in yeah, the regulations don't cover. So the different logics of legal compliance and risk-based approaches can mean that you reveal gaps, as it were, in the regulatory regime. Okay, the next thing you've got to do is be um, responsive to performance. That means you've got to be able to assess how well you're performing and also you've got to be able to justify how well you're performing. Now, very briefly, you've got to assess performance across the five core tasks. If I'm a regulator, I've got to know how good I am at detecting, enforcing, assessing, etc., etc. I've got to get to grips with the, the off-screen stuff, which is you know, the arrival of new risks that we didn't know about before, the stuff we're not picking up. Um, but the particular challenges, I just want to emphasize a uh, second bottom bullet point, the particular challenges for risk-based regulation are, firstly, counterfactuals. You've always got to be able to assess what your performance is as opposed to what's been caused by some other uh, factor out there. But the more particular problem arises again from meta-regulation, the, the practice of delegating down into the company the job of risk management. And the difficulty here is, of course, if, if I am auditing all of you companies and assessing how well you're controlling all of your risks, how do I assess the cumulative management of all of these risks? Answer, I've got to do some heroic calculation about your success down there in your companies. And of course, you'll all be doing it differently with different uh, data collection systems, different methods of reporting back to me. So that is the big problem of performance assessment within a risk-based system. Uh, it's the meta-regulatory element. The element that means that I am auditing your control of the risks rather than doing it directly myself, which would be much easier to evaluate. Uh, and then on justification, I think Julia is going to say a few words. Um, that links then to justification. Regulators have to justify what it is they've done, um, how it is they themselves have performed. And performance assessment justification is, is notoriously difficult in any regulatory arena. Um, for a number of different reasons. Firstly, even if you can show that, for example, air is cleaner, it's very hard to connect the fact that air is cleaner to anything that the Environment Agency may or may not have done. Um, can we attribute the lack of a massive outbreak of salmonella last year to new systems of regulation, or in fact they due to improved hygiene processes within um, foods because in fact the value chain of different producers and suppliers marked as fences basically is up the standards it requires its suppliers to achieve, or is it just simply luck? So it's very difficult to prove a causal connection between anything that happens out there in the world and anything that a regulator may have done. The second problem 
is that if you're actually talking about risk, you're talking about things that may happen, but haven't happened. Can you show, again, to reiterate, that they haven't happened because of what's, what's occurred? Moreover, could you, you can't ever show that something didn't happen because of what the regulator did, a counterfactual. So you can't prove that what did happen is due to what the regulator did, and you can't say that if the regulator hadn't done X, this would have happened. Okay, so it's very hard for a regulator to demonstrate its, um, its performance in that way. Thirdly, when you're talking about, we've been talking the language of risk, which assumes that you can, um, it's like road accidents, you can see there's been a certain number of deaths on a certain road when it's at a certain angle in certain weather conditions, um, and then you can calculate a risk quite uh, straightforwardly, statistically. Often you're actually talking about uncertainty. You're talking about how high impact, low probability events. Very hard to show um, how, they, how they've been managed if they haven't actually occurred. So trying to justify performance is, is always particularly difficult. Now, the issue that happens in relation to risk-based regulation is it offers this promise that risks will be managed and systematized um, and, and controlled, that uncertainty will be organized, to paraphrase um, another colleague of ours, Mike, Mike Power. But there's an issue that I've, we've iterated before that what the regulator's priorities may be in relation to risk might not actually match up to anybody else's priorities. Um, and there's a question about whether the regulator should really be allowed to make these decisions all on its own, in its little sort of box, and to what extent there should be greater transparency and accountability actually within those processes themselves. I was talking to some consumer um, representatives of the various consumer bodies that are attached to regulatory agencies. And I said, well, the thing about you guys is you focus on either side of the black box. You focus on consultation at the policy stage and accountability at some later stage. Okay, but you need to look inside the box. You need to look at actually how these priority decisions are being made um, within their risk-based systems, which was a bit of an eye-opener to them, and I, which I was quite sort of pleased about, because I think they should actually get in there, because I think you should have a different types of sort of politics of accountability, um, as, as, we've, as we've mentioned. But I think the other thing that, that has to, and this is a much bigger issue about risk debate, is a, is a need for a much more sophisticated public debate about really what regulation can do and how much risk government and regulators can, can prevent um, and, and how much money should be spent doing so. But that's a much bigger, bigger question about justification. Okay, finally, you've got to, as a regulator, respond to change because all regulatory affairs are afflicted by change. That is, there, there are new risks coming on the scene, new chemicals, there are new risk creators doing new operations. Um, now, the general problem that risk-based regulation has is that you've identified certain key risks which you're monitoring and you're, you're risk scoring on the basis of performance vis-a-vis -vis that framework of risks. Um, are you in a position then to pick up new risks and new risk creators? Well, in terms of detection, that's the big problem, that you are simply locked into the old framework. You're constantly looking for the old silos of risk. Uh, and when people start securitizing you know, new subprime mortgage-based instruments, then you're, you're in trouble. Um, responding with new rules and tools, the problem here, of course, is that risk-based regulation is organized around the detection of big risk creators. And as I said before, it doesn't tell you a lot about the sorts of tools you need and how to use those tools when you found the big risk creators. Um, so it doesn't tell you much about how to respond. Uh, in terms of your enforcement philosophy, again, you have this kind of the lens of the existing risk-based framework, which tells you something about detection, but not a lot, again, about enforcement. Um, and what you end up with is, if you like, the corruption of the risk-based regime, whereby you're my staff, and I've said to you, OK, we've identified the big risk creators out there because we've done a risk scoring system. You go out there and get these people to behave. Then you will all have your own philosophies of enforcement, your own strategies for getting them to behave, which will not be risk-based strategies because they're really orientated towards just detecting the big risk creators, not what to do with them. So you're operating with this hybrid system, uh, and it's difficult to, to move that hybrid system in any organized way to cope with new risks and new risk creators. 
Yeah, that's the big lock-in question and difficulty you get with risk-based regulation. Um, so that leads on to, well, how do you change your risk-based regulatory regime? How do you modify um, your structures? Now, here again, you're, you're highly, <coughs> any regulation is highly dependent on its institutional environment. So, so go back to the, the issue that you've discovered that there are risks there that your rules don't cover, and there are rules written that really don't cover any risks at all. Now, if you are a regulator who is an all-singing, all-dancing regulator that can write its own rules, then it's actually much easier. You've, okay, you've got to persuade the policy bit to take you seriously, but at least it's within your own organisation they have the power. If, however, you're talking about something written in statute or something written at the EU level, within an EU context, you haven't got a hope. Okay? It's going to be much, much harder for you to get any kind of modification of your statutory regime to enable you to do the job that you think you need to be able to do sensibly. And that, those regimes can be highly prescriptive, including mandating how many inspections have to be conducted at what intervals, etc., etc. So you may be completely stuck. You can't do anything just because you, cannot, you, haven't, got the, you haven't got the leverage, basically, to change those, those rules. The other thing that's going to change is, of course, the political environment. So again, go back to financial regulation pre-crisis. All the, all the political focus was on mis-selling, retail area. All, a lot of the regulators' resources, financial services authorities' resources, were focused on the retail firms um, to make to try and prevent mis-selling of financial products. And all the political message in relation to wholesale firms, which should be light touch, would be in competition in New York, who can be the most friendliest business-friendly regulator? Let's get the business over to London. London is the only economy, economic, you know, vibrant economy that we have outside of exporting our educational services. Um, so, which we argue has actually been rather more successful in the city. Well, at least we haven't crashed so much. Um, our impact is uh, not, is not we, we can't do as much harm, shall we say, as, as possibly they could do. Um, so you're going to have, regulators find that all of a sudden they will lose control, basically, of their ability to set their own risk appetite <coughs> as, um, as concerns shift and as crises come along. But the other thing that you have here is a potentially a misalignment of what the regulator thinks is important and what everybody else may think is important. And here you have a magnification of, of certain types of effects. So a regulator will look at things from a system-wide point of view. So if they're looking at um, a financial institution, they'll decide how much regulatory resource to spend on that financial institution based on the impact that it could have. Okay? If, it goes, if they mis-sell with you know, 4 million customers, it's going to have a much bigger impact than if X high street branch mis-sells with its 180 customers. Now that's fine from a regulator's point of view. Point of view of a consumer, okay, you've gone along to a high street broker okay, and you've been mis-sold a product. Now, you suffered exactly the same loss as you would have done had you been missold that product by HSBC. But the regulator is going to spend much more resources ensuring that you're protected okay, from being missold a product from HSBC than it is from the IFA on the street. So how, you're, how much you're being protected by really depends not on the harm that you're suffering yourself, but on how the regulator sees your harm in a broader system-wide context. So it doesn't take any notice of individual harm, it only looks at, it at, that, system, at that system level, rightly or wrongly, but that's a, that's a fundamental um, difference, as it were, in perspective. And obviously that might lead to a mismatch. Okay, just to summarise then. Why does any of this matter? What's the contribution of, of all of this? Well, what we've been saying is that as any regulator, you've got to be responsive to these, this list of things, the culture and all that. And you've got to do so across all the different tasks of regulation. But there are special problems in doing this if you are a risk-based regulator. Um, and what we're offering, if you like, is a framework for, for recognizing and dealing with the challenges that you get as a risk-based regulator. Why would, it, why would this make a difference? Well, if you just look at these headings here and think about the causes of the credit crisis. Behaviour and attitude. Did the regulators actually deal with the bonus culture stuff in the lead up to the credit crisis? Institutional environments, did they get to grips with you know, the government's t uh, obsession with light touch regulation? Um, interactions of control methods and logics. You know, did they work out the significance of their reliance on the credit ratings agencies? 
to evaluate all these new securitized products. Uh, performance of the control regime, were they aware of how good or how bad they were at dealing with all these systemic risks within the system? Answer, no. And finally, changes and challenges. You know, did they know about and get to grips with the new securitized products that were being coming through the markets? And the answer is no. So you can see that this framework immediately picks up you know, five absolutely you know, catastrophic failures within that system. And we would argue you could use this for, for any risk-based regulatory regime. Anyway, we better stop there. Sorry, we've um, bang on for too long. So any quick questions before um, you depart? Thank you. Um, thank you for your lecture. Uh, you brought up risk score systems. Um, are there any alternatives or any models that are being used or, or that exist and aren't being used? The risk scoring system? Do you mean to alternatives to risk-based to, to risk regime? Well, to the risk scoring system, because you were saying that um, we... Hmm. You were saying that um, it tells us a lot about detection, um, but that it isn't comprehensive. Um, in many ways, about telling us how to deal with how to deal with an issue. Um, so, do we have an alternative, something that would help us deal with both assessing risk and dealing with detection? Sorry, and dealing with um, with actually dealing with the problem. Oh yeah, <clears throat> they vary. Okay, a lot of um, if you go to if you want uh, an example, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. It has a it has a system called pairs and saws. Um, and PEARS is a probability and impact rating system. And then depending on the score that's given by a supervisor, um, there's then a supervisory oversight and response system. Okay? And the scoring links from the probability links into what the supervisor's then got to do. Okay? Whether they've got to um, seek a buyer for the bank, whether they've got to just go into management and say you've got to change your risk and controls, or whether they've just got to go back and do another examination in a year's time. Okay, so but they're, they're pretty unique. Now that model is being actually dispersed through the, um, the diaspora of regulators in the, in the Far East, which is sort of um, geographically quite contingent to, to Australia. So Indonesia adopting it for its pensions regime, but not its banking so far. Um, as interesting Hong Kong, Singapore, those regulatory authorities are, are locking in okay, a plan with an assessment. Now in fact, it really depends because they've got a very narrow remit, which is just to make sure a bank doesn't fail. Um, if you've got a much broader remit like the Financial Services Authority, which is also to make sure that you don't miss sell and you don't do X and you don't do Y, then it's harder to lock into a particular plan. 